All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're feeling good this first Sunday of October. Our hearts and prayers are with the folks in Florida, mainly Fort Myers. How many of you have been to Fort Myers or Captiva or Sanibel? And uh, that path that uh, Hurricane Ian took, even uh, down in um, Garden City and places in South Carolina. So, um, Let's remember them in our prayers, all of us. All right. Well, um, glad you're here today. Uh, received a lot of positive, a lot of good comments about our Revelation series. It's seven sermon series we just wrapped up. I really would like to spend about uh, seven more or 20 more because I love diving deep into, into that book and into the, into the Word. But uh, we're going to leave that where it is if you didn't catch all of those, be sure to go on to our YouTube channel or to our website, it's the easiest place, gatewaychurch.net, which you can find with uh, your phone, those QR codes on the back of your seat and around the building. But we're going to move on today and start a new series from John 13. And as you can see from the title package, it's called Servant Leadership. Servant Leadership. John 13 is, uh, is a great chapter. I love everything about John's gospel. I don't know if you've read much in the gospels, but if you're new to the faith, if you're a new Christian, that's where you need to start. You need to start with the gospels, in my opinion. I would start with Mark, actually. But John is so rich and so deep. He uses imagery and language, ties things to the Old Testament in a way that uh, none of the other writers really do. He's, he's writing uh, to a very unique audience that has a lot of, philosophical thinking in their mind, you know, Greeks and people who, who understood their, their thinking. And John 13 is a special chapter because it is the first of the last. So John 1 through 12 is, in John's gospel, it's Jesus' public ministry, John 1 through 12. And if you'll remember, John chapter 11 things culminated with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the Pharisees uh, and the religious leaders. Because Lazarus now was alive and he was making, <clears throat> the Bible says he was converting a lot of people. He was, the, the chatter, the noise about Jesus was getting louder and louder. And so uh, John chapter 12 is the end of the public ministry, and John 13 is the first chapter that starts when Jesus has a powwow. He, has, he pulls his disciples into what we call the upper room, and starting with John 13, going through some of John 18 is what we call the upper room discourse. <clears throat> in other words, he has his, the 12 apostles in a room, upstairs, upper room, and they are... They're going to share some things, important things. This is, the, this is the coach pulling in his team right before the big game, uh, maybe the, the Friday night before the big game on Saturday. This is the, the military general pulling in his soldiers in one big powwow the night before the big battle. This is what Jesus is doing. He wants to make sure that they understand that everything they'd seen, everything he had taught, Everything he had done 
was all training, really. It was all training, preparation for what was about to happen because in 24 hours from John chapter 13, he was going to Calvary. In about 24 hours, he would be nailed to a cross. It was looming large. One Bible scholar, Alexander McLaren, wrote of this chapter and the chapters following it. He said, nowhere else is Jesus' speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else do we have the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led up is his most perfect self-revelation in action. So all that Jesus was teaching, all that he had taught was leading up to this moment where he would not just teach with word, but he would show them in deed, in what he did. Now, this series, with this series, we have three primary focuses. I think you call those foci, don't you? Is that what a two focuses are, foci? Uh, I think it's F-O-C-I-I. Is that right, Beth? You're a school teacher. So we have three foci. Crystal, you're a school teacher. Where's my wife? Foci. We'll go with it, all right? We have three foci. I never thought I'd say that here, foci. So it's, it's really to keep our focus on Jesus. That's number one. You know, he was the... He was the focus of revelation, and really, you've heard me say before, he's the focus of the whole Bible. You know, from Genesis chapter 3, where God told the serpent, a seed of the woman is going to crush your head, that's, that's Jesus, talking about Jesus there. And every book following that is really unveiling the story, the great big story of God, the upper story of God that would culminate in Jesus. So we want to do that. We don't ever want to stop doing that with what we preach and teach. And in the Last Supper, in the upper room, that's what's going on here, he, Jesus opened his heart to his disciples in a way that he, they had never seen before, we've never seen before. And secondly, to show us what good leadership looks like. <clears throat> we need to see good leadership, don't we? We need good leaders. We live in a world full of bad leaders. We live in a world, almost every arena of life, entertainment, athletics, not to mention government, even the church, unfortunately, we see leaders who think more of themselves than they think of their followers. Someone said a noble leader answers not to the trumpet call of self-promotion, but to the hush whispers of necessity. And so what we see in John 13 is an example of leadership, leadership that all of us could follow and should follow. And that leads me to the last purpose here, last focus, and that's to encourage you, to inspire you to step up to the plate and to be a leader, a servant leader. Again, I'll repeat, we need good leaders. We need them in the church. We need them in our culture. We need them here at Gateway Church. We need a few of you to step up and say, what will it take for me to be a leader of this church? What would it take for me to be an elder? I think every man who is uh, following Jesus and who is interested in what Jesus is interested in, 
should aspire at some point in his life to being an elder of the church. That's just my personal view. Maybe I'm just a little biased because I, I see the more critical nature of it from my perspective. But to me, it makes sense for a, for and, and again, ladies, this is a this is a position for a man. This is, scripture is clear about this. I think every man should aspire to become an elder at one point in his life. <clears throat> I know it's it won't happen. It's it's uh, it may be not feasible. But wouldn't it be nice if every husband, every father was as concerned and interested in the church as an elder is supposed to be and is? His heart is for God and for the church. And we need some of you to step up and say, hey, what, what would it take? Maybe, maybe you, you're not fit for that. And, and there are a lot of things we, we, we'll walk you through and we'll look at and we'll take you through a year of candidacy and training and and you might say, you know what, this, this, uh, maybe this is not where God has gifted me. Maybe it's not where he wants me to be. Uh, I, I may aspire to it, but it, maybe it doesn't work out. Because in 1 Timothy 3, there's an aspiration. It's a good, noble thing to do if you want to do this. But then there's qualifications. Okay, now you need to be qualified. And maybe, maybe you're not. But it would be worth looking into because uh, we, we, as we... Our elders, as we look into the future, we see a lack of leadership at that level in our church. We need men to step up and say, I, I would like to serve in this way. You know, I just, uh, we, we have, I'm, I'm considered an elder because First Timothy 5.17 says my position is the preaching and teaching elder, the one who works at preaching and teaching. So I'm considered an elder, but I'm like the paid elder, if you will. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, leader of the staff, but we need lay elders, we need volunteers, and we only have three besides me, and Big Dave Lavender from our Marmette campus wanted to step down this year, but we talked him into staying on, and I just got, I got a glimpse of Rick. Rick served for many years uh, in, uh, as an elder, so some of you younger men, uh, we'd love for you to step up and say, I, I, I'm ready, what can I do? We need several of you to step up and lead a group at this campus. You know, a lot of our elders will come from small group leaders. That's kind of a test in our eyes. If you're leading a group, maybe you can lead a church, help lead a church. And so that's really the training ground. So if you're interested in an elder but you're not leading anything now, maybe the first thing for you to do is to step up and lead a group. That's what we look at when we're looking at potential leaders, potential elders, are they leading? Are they doing anything to lead? And so we need lots of you to step up and lead a group. I, I, I was talking to Joel the other day and uh, talked to all the campus ministers. I'm not sure the percentage of people here in small groups, but I think it's pretty good. Uh, I, I mean, it might be somewhere around 30%. And you, you might think, well, that's not very good. 30% of the people who come here on Sunday morning are in some kind of a small group where they can sit around a table and discuss and lean on each other and have accountability and grow together. We need more groups, therefore we need more leaders. We need many of you more than at any other time to step up and say, I want to volunteer in ministry. I want to volunteer. I want to, I want to serve with our kids. I want to serve with the little ones. I want to serve with the students. I want to serve with some adults. I want to be on some team that helps this church do what this church does, to be what this church 
does. So we need men and women to step up and say, I want to lead. And that's part of the purpose. We hope to inspire you and to encourage you to do something. And all of us should be leaders in our family, right? We should, we should step up and be a servant leader. In other words, we're leading, but we're also serving. Martin Luther King Jr. once pointed out the fact that life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe the, them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am going doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, I put then in there, Lord, not only my feet, but also, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And John says, for he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So here in John 13, we see what a servant leader does he takes a towel. He takes a towel. This is one of the greatest, most striking pictures of humility, of servant leadership we have in the whole Bible. In the first century, you know, people wore sandals. You know this because you, you just know this. They wore sandals, and inevitably as they walked on those unpaved streets, dust got on their feet. And that dust and road debris, we could call it road grime and tiny particles of skin, got into the cramped crevices of their toes. And so this is what we become, had become known as first century what? Toe jam. Toe jam. Yeah, today uh, it might... It might include lint particles from your socks or your shoes, uh, or maybe some foot fungus, and according to podiatrists, can have the consistency of soft cheese or cake crumbs. That's on the podiatrist website. Yeah, and you can bet that every two-year-old has tasted toe jam. How many of you have a two-year-old? And how many of you know they tasted toe jam? Yeah, they have, just trust me, and a lot of other things, a lot of other things. And, by the way, you were a two-year-old once, so in your system, you've got some toe jam still lurking around. So, this is where we are. Supper was over now. Jesus got up. He poured water into a bowl. He took his outer garment off. He tied... Uh, and around his waist, he took a towel and he began to move around the room. 
and wash feet. Now, foot washing was an ancient, uh, um, when I say ancient, I mean first century, and even today in cultures where they still walk around that way, it, it, was a, it was a common courtesy. It was an act of hospitality when you entered a home. It was, uh, you know, like I'll take your coat and hang it up over here or whatever hospitable act you can perform when someone comes into your home. And it was always performed by someone of a lower status. So it, it could have been, you know, just somebody in the home. Um, uh, it could have been a servant if they had servants. Or it was an act of devotion. It might have been an act of devotion. So it might have been a student washing the feet of his teacher, his rabbi. But it was always, remember, someone of lower status washing the feet of someone of higher status. You, you get the picture, don't you? You get the picture. You know what's going on here. But in John 13, it's reversed. And isn't this what Jesus did so many times? Kingdom values are reversed. The greatest shall be the least. First shall be last. The rich will be poor. The poor will be rich. And here he turns the tables again. The teacher is washing the feet of his students. The master is washing the feet of, of his servants. We could say God is stooping to wash the feet of man. It's an incredible picture. I mean, it, it, this is why John 13 is so intimate. I mean, it's an intimate, close moment of Jesus with his 12. It, it's... Can you hear the silence around the room, the shock, the disbelief of what is he doing? What is he doing? Now, I'm going to answer just two questions uh, this morning from this text. And the first one is, what, what, what is his motivation? The motivation. What is the motivation of a servant leader? What would make someone do what Jesus did? On that night. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. You might remember back in John chapter 2 when Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. You remember that miracle that Jesus performed there? It was his first public miracle. And when his mother came to him and said, They're out of wine told the servants, you do whatever he tells you to do, Jesus said, woman, affectionately, my hour has not come. You know, I was thinking about that this morning as I was getting ready, as I was going through the sermon in my mind. I was thinking about why would Mary do that? Why would Mary do that? I mean, Mary was evidently invested in this wedding. She was close to someone. She knew someone, and she knew perhaps the, the hosts who were going to be embarrassed if they ran out of wine. And why would she go to her son? I mean, uh, why would she do this? You know what I think happened here? And we don't get this in the text, and maybe I'm speculating a little bit. But you know what I think happened? Jesus, we, we don't really know anything about his growing up days. There's that one story when he was uh, 12 years old and in the temple, when they had gone to Jerusalem, he was in the temple, you remember, and he was in there talking to the chief priests, the religious leaders, wowing them with his uh, knowledge and wisdom, <clears throat> they had to go get him. But we don't really have any other stories, not biblical stories. There's some 
what we call apocryphal stories of one time he was playing in the mud with his friends and he turned some mud into doves and they flew away. That, that's apocryphal. It was, a, it was a story written later that someone put back on there. But you know what I think happened? I think when Jesus was young and his, the rest of his siblings were born, a bunch of little kids running around the house, typical Jewish family, Joseph probably died. You know, we don't read about Joseph later in the Gospels, really not much after the, uh, the birth stories. I think Joseph died, and Mary was left to, to, uh, to support the family and to help the family to make it through, and she had all these kids. You know, Jesus had brothers and sisters. I think there were moments when Mary went to the cupboard to get what was left of that bag of rice or that little bit of fish in the pantry or those beans in that sack, knowing that she's not going to have enough to feed her families, family, her kids, I think because Joseph was gone, I think she went to that cupboard and every time she went there, the rice bag is full again. The bean bag is full again. The, the oil, it never runs out. I, I'm just speculating here, but can you think maybe Jesus would be standing over to the side hoping he didn't, she didn't notice, and she'd look over at Jesus and say, you did this, didn't you? Isn't that a cool thought? Thank you. I thought it was a cool thought this morning as I was brushing my teeth. And so Mary brings the servants over to Jesus and said, he, he's done this a thousand times. He, he knows what he's doing. Hey, take care of this. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. But do you obey your mama even if you're Jesus? Yes, you do. Even if you're Jesus, you do what your mama says. But you know, his hour had not yet come. In John 7, verse 30, the Bible says the Pharisees came to arrest him one time, but they couldn't because... John says his hour had not come. John 8, 20, the same thing. His earthly ministry, though now in John 13, was coming to a close and his hour had come. And that's what John says is he knew his hour had come. It was, it, was time to, to, uh, it was time to go private because he was about to go public. It, it was time uh, for the big hour. The big hour what was what was going to happen at Calvary in less than 24 hours. And so he wanted to make sure that his disciples got the message and the method by which to share the message. And make no mistake about it, the message was the cross. That's what I'm here for, guys. It's all headed there. And the method was humility. I'm going to die. I'm going to give myself up to die. You remember in Revelation when, uh, in, John, in Revelation 5 when John was saying, that the, no one was worthy to open up the scrolls, the sealed scrolls. And uh, so John began to weep. John began to weep. And then one of the elders came up to him and said, don't weep. There is someone who's worthy to open the scrolls. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of Jesse. He's worthy. And so John turns around to see this lion, but he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? He sees a lamb. Not only a lamb, but a bloodied lamb. And that, that, was the, that was the method of victory. And I know we like the Revelation 19 picture of Jesus riding on that white stallion, coming back with 
his army and with the sword coming out of his mouth. But I want to tell you something, the, the victory that you and I have today and the victory that we will have on Judgment Day and the victory we'll have through eternity comes from the humility of Christ. And if you somehow think that you're going to be standing over people one day in Jesus' name, then I think you're getting the wrong message from the Bible because it's all about humility. And I believe in heaven for eternity, we, when we see Jesus, we'll see a bloodied Jesus to remind us of the price he paid at Calvary. And so that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what's the motivation? The motivation, we know it, it's love. It's love. What makes a servant leader? What makes a good leader do what a good leader does? It's love. I like this phrase in verse 1 at the end. It says, he loved them to the end. Some versions say he loved them to the uttermost. What does this mean? I think it meant he... He loved them to the end of his earthly life. He loved them with a love that would never end. He loved them to the uttermost. If, he were, if his love were in a cup or a bucket, he would have poured every drop out. He wouldn't have saved anything. It was all on the field. He left it all out there. He left nothing back, held nothing back for us. He loved them to the end. And we need leaders today who are motivated by love, not by greed or not by thirst for power or influence. We need leaders who love people and therefore want to do what the people need. Wouldn't it be refreshing to have a leader in government or in entertainment or in um, uh, athletics and we do have some, I'm sure. We, wouldn't it be refreshing time and time again to see leaders who would say, you know, I'm not here for me. I'm not here for me. And I could go away tomorrow, but what I'm going to do today with the time I have is I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get to where you need to be. Wouldn't that be refreshing? It would be so refreshing. Paul said, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I like what he said to the Corinthians. This, this is a great phrase in here. He said, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And listen to this phrase, for Christ's love compels us. This is the way the NIV puts it. Some versions say controls us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. We live for him, and, and, they, and he was raised again. So, so this, is, this is a motivation of love. Now let's ask the second question as we wrap up. Who benefits? Who benefits from servant leadership? Easy answer. Everyone does. Everyone benefits. It's interesting here, this interchange between Judas and Jesus. John tells us that Satan had been working in the heart of Jesus. We, Judas, we, t we talked a lot about Satan, you know, in the last series, that old dragon. He's a liar. He's a loser. He's going to be cast in the lake of fire. But until that happens, he's, he's like a dog on a leash 
waiting for someone to get into his arena, to come into his territory. And that's what Judas did. He, he walks down thinking, you know, I'm going to gain from this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to be set for life. You know, that was a lot of money in those days. And, uh, and, you know, looking back on his life, John said, and back in chapter 12, when this woman came and poured out expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, Judas said, why, why wasn't this sold and money given to the poor? John said, Judas didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He, he didn't care one thing about the poor. What he cared about was himself. He was a treasurer. He kept the money bag, and he used to pilfer through it. That's what John said in John 12, verse 6. So we know that Judas struggled with honesty and, and pride, the selfish pride. And he, what he did was he gave the devil a foothold. He gave the devil a foothold in his heart. And I know that there are some people I'm talking here to today who are, you're, you're flirting with this. You're giving the devil a foothold. You're trying to go after what he wants. You're trying to go after what you think you need. And you don't have the things of God in your mind and in your heart. But listen to me. You need to, you need to fight that. Don't give the devil a foothold. Because like Judas, you give the devil an inch and he'll take a mile. And it, it, it was at this, this time we read that Judas stepped over the line and Satan came into his heart. Could Judas have changed his mind? Did Judas have free will? Sure he did. Sure he did. He could have changed his mind. He had free will. God doesn't force anybody into hell. God doesn't force anybody into making a bad decision. But Judas was giving the devil a foothold. He was, he was hardening his heart because of himself. And so when the gospel writers look back on his life, they, they call him by a title. They say, it's the Judas, oh, this is the Judas who was the betrayer. This is the Judas who was the traitor. I wonder what people will say about you and me when they describe us later. We should start working on that today, shouldn't we? Whatever we want people to call us, oh, that's the preacher who takes naps. I'm kind of afraid that's, that's what my title will be. But I've come to grips with that. I don't think it'll be that bad because I think we all love naps, right? Jesus took a nap, amen? So, uh, you know, Jesus knew what Judas was doing, and I think Judas knew that Jesus knew what he was doing. What a moment it must have been. What a remarkable thing Jesus did on that unforgettable night for all of his disciples. Can you see him working his way around the room? And, you know, Jesus knew that he had been given all things, and he had come from God, he was going back to God. He knew that he could, just with the, the thought of his mind, let alone the snap of his fingers, he could have done anything he wanted to do and commanded the entire universe to bow to him. In this moment, did he do that? Did he kick his feet up and make his disciples feed him grapes? Did, did he snap his fingers and do some miraculous show of power? No. What did he do? He took a towel and he washed their feet. That's why Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What other world leaders would do and would have done what Jesus did. Now, here's what makes more sense and makes it a compelling thing. When the disciples came in 
Luke 22 tells us they were arguing about something. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest among them. I think any one of them would have washed Jesus' feet, but I don't think any one of them would have stooped down to wash anybody else's feet because it would have showed some inferiority. Now, imagine Jesus doing this. He's, he's hitting all of them, Judas, Philip, Andrew, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Thomas, James, John. You know, in Leonardo da Vinci's great picture, John is sitting on one side of Jesus leaning into him, and Judas is on the other side leaning away from him. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's a great picture. John is leaning into Jesus. Judas is leaning away from Jesus. Which way are you leaning? Which way are you leaning? And finally, he gets to Peter. And Peter knows who Jesus is. He's the one that confessed him on Caesarea Philippi. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the one that saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration with, uh, with uh, James and John. He saw him in all his glory. He's the one that, that, uh, that realized, hey, I'm a sinful man. You did this miracle with the fish. And so Peter knows this is not supposed to work this way. Kings don't wash the feet of servants. He said, that's why Peter said, Jesus, a guy like you would never wash my feet. This isn't right. Jesus said, yeah, but if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And Peter said, okay, then just give me a whole shower. You know, Peter was one of those guys, you know, he was here and then he was over here. And I think at some point we realize that all of us are somewhere between Judas and Peter. There are some of us who are headed down the wrong road and we know it. We need to turn around. Judas could have repented, you know. He could have repented. Peter repented. Peter denied him three times. Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, but he could have repented. Through grace, through the help of the Holy Spirit, he could have said, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. Let's use this money for good. But he didn't. He didn't repent. He went out and killed himself. And uh, Peter did repent. And all of us are somewhere in between. And, and I think the great thing is that Jesus knew everybody's heart intimately, and yet he still washed their feet. And so should we. Without making any distinctions or judgments about their conditions, we should just take a towel. Peter said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I've got three questions for you before we close. Three questions, and here they are. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, what's stopping you? What, what is the holdup for you? What's stopping you from surrendering your life to Christ? You need to deal with that, whatever it is. If it's an intellectual argument or if it's some kind of emotion or some, something in your past that happened to you or if it's somebody now that you just, you know, you're, you're just not happy with and they're supposed to be a Christian, deal with that because I want to tell you this, this is what life is all about. What is it that's stopping you from giving your life to Christ? Secondly, if you are a Christian, what's stopping you from serving? What's stopping you from stepping up saying, use me, Lord, however you want me to be used, use me? What's stopping that? Is it because of your desire for comfort or your fear of sacrifice or commitment or, uh, you know, whatever it is, a fear of ridicule, fear of being in front of people? Deal with that. And the last question I want to ask you is, do you realize the difference you could make in the lives of the people around you? If you would 
serve and become a servant leader. You're a leader because of your servanthood. It makes you a servant leader. You're leading in service. Think about it. And so husbands, um, clean the underside of the toilet. That'd make you a servant, wouldn't it? Anybody with me? I mean, she doesn't see it, and you do. you got to clean it, right? That may be the most disgusting thing you might do, but just do it. Just do it. And if you leave it up for her to see, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. What other instances could we talk about of what you could do at home, what you could do to lead in serving, to be a servant leader. Y'all think about it this week and talk about it with your small groups. Right now, I want you to think about where you stand with the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross for us. I pray that you would impress on our hearts and on our lives our need to serve and to be a leader in service, to be like our Lord, our Savior washed the feet of his disciples in that critical hour those hours before he was going to pay the ultimate price for their sins and for ours Lord help us to be more like him in his name we pray Amen